My name is Ana Maria Aristizabal, and I am currently a senior advisor to the Employment Technology Fund at Jobs for the Future. ETF is the highest impact venture fund uh, focused on workforce development, and I'm also an adjunct professor of impact investing at Columbia University. Ana, thank you for joining me. What is impact investing? Thank you. That's a, that's a really good question that I get asked often. And what I, what I like to start saying is that impact investing concept has evolved, but there are some organizations that have anchored around a, a very strong definition that I like to use for me. Investments, uh, impact investment investing is basically investments made into companies, organizations, and funds with a clear intention to generate social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. The practice of impact investing is typically defined by four characteristics, which is one, the intention to have that positive social or environmental impact. Second, the expectation of generating a financial return. Three, it can have different range of, of return expectations, but there is a return. And four, but very important, is this commitment to measure and report that impact uh, of the investments. Okay, so I've always wondered at how, how do you, where do you draw the line? Because to a certain extent, you could argue that any company could claim that they, they are uh, impact oriented. For example, I was thinking, can ExxonMobil uh, present themselves and what they do as, you know, an impact uh, oriented company? And the answer is, I think, yes, you know, they, uh, they could argue that they're trying to, um, uh, improve the livelihoods of people in the Middle East by uh, increasing their uh, wealth through, uh, you know, investment in oil uh, mm -hmm. and whatever. Um, I don't know. It just feels like um, the, uh, the the range of uh, of companies uh, that can be included uh, can be considered as impact oriented. Um, yeah, that's a, that's it's a little unclear. It's a little unclear. Yeah. No, I understand. And I get, I, I have that conversation at home all the time. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, a, it's a topic of conversation that is, that is important to illuminate. And I think it's the most important way to actually like clarify when something is impact investment or not is when you are looking at that intent to generate a positive social or environmental impact. Mm -hmm. And the last point that I just made, which is that commitment to measure and report on that impact. So you might be generating like a byproduct impact, but if yeah. you are not intentionally creating it and reporting it and measuring it, then you are not an impact investor or an impact investing company. Okay, so is Tesla, for example, an impact-oriented uh, uh, company? So they, you, they could claim that they are an impact-oriented company. Yes, mm -hmm. I don't think necessarily um, they are every like every car they produce is with the intention to generate an environmental impact or they are actually reporting out or their environmental contribution if they well, are and they start doing it they might attract some investors to who want to look at them in that regard but of course they are really far out on their investment journey i see so what i'm hearing is that it's pretty unclear uh how we how, how do we define impact investing is pretty unclear because I, I you, would, could, you could I very easily no? Oh. I wouldn't say that it's very unclear. I would say that the definition is expansive. And mm -hmm. particularly now, I think as the as society is really pushing for more sustainability and like we have so 
few years to actually meet our commitments in terms of carbon reduction, and we are seeing so much social unrest. I think that there are companies and investors looking for creative ways to meet those goals. And there is an attempt to use other concepts. Like that's why ESG, environmental, socially, and governance metrics are becoming so important. Mm -hmm. um, there are companies that are adopting the United Nations development goals to define what they do, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that it's impact investing. I think that all of those fit within the category of responsible investing, they fit in the category of maybe even social finance, but impact investing is, is a niche within all of that spectrum of potential finance innovation yeah. that is very particular and characterized by the four features that I described before. Yeah, so where, do, where, do, where does the funding come in the world of impact investing? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So that funding come from, has evolved. Where does it come from? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it, it has evolved over time. Um, at the beginning, when, when the industry like, started to shape up, it was mostly coming from philanthropic investors that were the ones shaping up the industry and like really putting, like trying to demonstrate that it was possible to generate positive social impact alongside financial return. And over time, other more traditional investors have started to participate. When I joined uh, Bamboo Finance back in 2011, it was very reassuring for me to see pension funds uh, in, in Europe committed to actually join that effort of creating this industry. And certainly like that allowed a fund like that or Blue Orchard or like the other European pioneer funds in the space to grow. Uh, nowadays, you see even more traditional uh, commercial funds interested in impact investing, like you've seen BlackRock and other large asset managers interested in the space because not only they see the potential for growth, but because also mm -hmm. they have people like you and me who care about the impact and they want to put their money and their savings into, into assets and opportunities that actually are aligned with their values. Yeah. And see, that's, uh, that's my... Uh... My thing over there, like when, when you hear that BlackRock is running a, uh, or Goldman Sachs is running a, an impact investment fund, you start having doubts about the intent of the, of the fund itself. I mean, maybe there are, you know, clearly defined parameters, et cetera, but then you start uh, having doubts about uh, the intent. Does Goldman Sachs perhaps, have, you know, or, or BlackRock have any interest in, you know, improving the world or is, because in their case, uh, uh, it sounds like impact investment is nothing else other than a, a marketing uh, scheme for the fund, for them to raise more, more capital from uh, institution, institutions uh, like uh, universities and pension funds and stuff like that. That's like- No, I, I, I understand. I, under, I understand where you're coming from. And, and I, I am an optimist um, yeah. and I am also someone who likes to, like to see the glass uh, half full. So yeah. although I understand what you're saying, and I think that there's been a lot of criticism, particularly in the academic space around greenwashing and like how blurry impact mm -hmm. investing has become and like mm -hmm. how opportunistic it's been for some funds. I like, to, I like to say like the more capital that is flowing onto social initiatives and environmental initiatives, the better because yeah. the planet needs it, society needs it. So I don't, I, I don't necessarily am concerned or worried about that. Of course, I care about the way that is done because certainly capital flowing into the space is going to go to real people, real founders, like real individuals at the bottom line. And yeah. therefore who is driving the impact is gonna influence 
what's happening on the ground and, and, and your investors determine a lot of the fate of companies in some cases. So that's what would be where I would be more concerned and cautious. And what I coach founders around is like, choose who you want to work with because the capital that you raise is going to influence your path. Right. Let's talk about the different phases in your career. You started uh, at Bamboo in 2011. You stayed there for several years and then you transitioned to consulting, correct? And well, it's, as well it's, as academia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's some, somewhere there. I'm, I'm, I like to start at the beginning and, and, and say sure. that I am a proud Colombian um, and I'm an immigrant to the United States and, uh, and someone who grew up in a, in a modest household who has made strides thanks to high quality education, mentors and economic opportunity, which is why I'm so passionate about like unleashing the human potential and disrupting cycles of poverty with high quality education. Um, and that basically influences significantly my career. I, nowadays, I consider myself an operator, an investor, and a board member of, of impact organizations. And in fact, I started my career as an investment banker. Um, when I was very young, I was working in the investment banking houses of ABN AMRO at Citibank, and I was structuring financial solutions for government and infrastructure companies, which was absolutely a wonderful and formative experience. It taught me the rigor, the technical skills. It allowed me to work with, like, of course, government and, and, and these kind of like large infrastructure companies financing projects that are driving economic um, mobility in, in, in my own home country, Colombia. And it also showed me the, the large amounts of capital that exist and that can be leveraged for, for public good, um, which is what led me to go to do my master's degree at Columbia University and later to work at Bamboo, as you, as you well um, found out. And, and, and when, as I say, when I went to work at Bamboo Capital Partners, which was a pioneer impact investing fund um, that back in 2011 was like one of the most important players in the space. And one of the few, because in 10, 11 years ago, impact investing was a nascent industry that is not even near what it is right now that has grown in such an exponential way. My role at Bamboo was, um, I was hired to, to help build the Latin American portfolio, the Latin American operations and, and the team. And I mm -hmm. advised several companies in our portfolio as their board member, which was an absolutely transformative experience for me. Like the six years I spent there were some of the happiest of my life uh, because it allowed me to work really closely with, with the founders <coughs> and, and of course colleagues in the impact investing space, very passionate about building this industry. But I also was able to work with low income entrepreneurs who taught me that the only sustainable way to break the cycle of poverty was through high quality education and economic opportunity, which led me to KEP. So I, I moved uh, for, a, for a few years out of the investing space and I went to be an operator and I work at KEP, which is the largest charter, uh, charter public and free um, charter net network here in the United States. And I would join their team in California to lead their growth, their growth and their advocacy strategy. And I was in charge of expanding the operations in Northern California. And it was another wonderful journey. I spent five years there uh, doing that kind of work, learning and getting like really challenging um, openings of schools in different, in different places. And it also taught me that young adults need more than a high quality K-12 education, like which is very important, yes, 
but a K-12 education and a college degree doesn't necessarily guarantee success and a successful career as we are seeing now with so many people out of the work market. Um, and I, I was convinced that there was a need for something different, both in education and approaches to work, uh, and that we need to find different ways to use technology to do that. And Fortunately, I found Jobs for the Future and the, the Employment Technology Fund, where I'm currently uh, working, and I decided to join them because I, I really admire what they do and how they do it. So what is, uh, so how come in Bamboo you work with a variety of different entrepreneurs that you transitioned to education? What was it that made you decide to take that step from uh, Bamboo to Kip? Yeah, thank you for the question. So I was at Bamboo, we were very focused on, on microfinance, financial inclusion. We had another large portfolio in the energy space. We were working in the health space. And it was very difficult at the time to be able to do investments in education with the kind of capital that we had um, because education was had not been fully disrupted as it is right now with the growth of the ed tech space. Um, and it was it was risky, I think, for the kind of capital that was available and impact investing at the time to do that. So I, I was like really, like really determined that I wanted to do something in education because I knew that in my home country and Latin America and like in many other developing countries, like only through high quality education and economic opportunity, we could actually break those cycles of poverty. And I took the leap of going onto the operational side and wanted to understand education from the deep end and went to do my master's in educational leadership uh, with a broad residency and joined KEP as part of that exercise. So I feel like I like to go and dive really deeply in to something to, to feel like I come out of it with deep learnings that I can now apply to my next uh, chapter. Have you ever been an entrepreneur? Have you ever worked on startups uh, outside uh, your consulting for the consulting that you did uh, as uh, as an associate at different funds? So not necessarily myself as a founder and entrepreneur. I've been around many founders, including my own brother, who is an edtech uh, founder himself. Yeah. And I, I do feel like my work at Keb was similar to how founders actually show up because in a nonprofit and a large nonprofit with very ambitious goals, you have to be very scrappy to be able to do what you need to do with limited resources and find creative ways to collaborate with others to get to get stuff done and drive social outcomes. Right. So how does uh, how does it work? Meaning how does an impact VC uh, work? Uh, how is it different from a regular non-impact uh, VC? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, and I think that's why I, I was so excited to, to learn about um, the Employment Technology Fund in particular, because it's, it's a fund that is intentionally leveraging technology for social good. And I, was, I, was, I lived in the Silicon Valley for so many years, and there wasn't so much of that um, appetite to use social innovation and technology innovation for the impact. And, and that's why I'm excited to like, think of a fund that is able to deploy smart capital and like use networks and use relationships to actually benefit companies that are embedding into their business operation the impact, like the impact generation activity. So how we like the difference to your point is that in a traditional investing fund, or like even when I was in, in traditional finance, then you are thinking about risk and you are thinking about financial return. And you are all the time optimizing for those two factors. When you are an impact investor, you have to add a third variable, which is impact. 
So you're all the time moving in between that triangle and that pyramid of, of return, risk, and impact, and looking to, at some points, maximize one or the other. Obviously, the idea would be to find an ideal balance between those three, and that's why it's even more challenging. I think that impact investing has a greater amount of complexity, particularly when you are in, a, in an impact venture capital fund that is promising returns back to investors. So one thing is to do it for profit, another thing is to do it non-profit, and therefore the challenge only increases as you introduce the for-profit variable. Okay, so Bamboo was a for-profit impact investing fund. And uh, you mentioned that some of the entrepreneurs were low-income entrepreneurs. So you had regular startup type uh, entrepreneurs who came out of universities and varying income or whatever, and then you had low-income local entrepreneurs. How did it work? Yeah, so it's um, it's uh, thank you for picking up on that. So I wasn't not not necessarily at the time at Bamboo, the entrepreneurs and founders that we were working with not necessarily were not necessarily were like by the low income and it was not a part of that criteria. But because I was working with microfinance banks and fi and microfinance institutions, the clients of those organizations were all low income entrepreneurs. Like uh -huh. that's that's the core of of microfinance because those, those individuals are looking for ways to get out of poverty and improve their life quality through economic generating activities. So I just want to clarify. So, so that was not along the lines of what Bamboo invested in. It was more like your experience with uh, investment banks, investing in like microfinance, uh, micro uh, financing, stuff like that. that that's, that's what you're talking about. Not what bamboo did right? no 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 bamboo bamboo's bam, bamboo capital partners was is, is specialized in microfinance investing oh, so, exactly so, so, the, so one as of the a, things that they did VC, was that. yeah so, so how does that work when when it comes to to vc uh how did it work for bamboo so, yeah you mean like what were the kind of investments that they did or what uh, well, are you yes. more interested yes yes what were the kinds of investments and uh were they in the form of debt or just our equity or how, how, yeah. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question. So the, initially uh, the origins of, uh, of Bamboo and, and Blue Orchard were in the debt space, right? Like that was the, the impact investing industry grew up out of debt. So at, at the beginning, I'll say when Blue Orchard and Bamboo were, were one fund, uh, we were doing a lot of debt and it was debt to microfinance institutions which later relend those resources to a local low-income entrepreneurs. That was like the, how the origin. Later, as when Bamboo Capital was created, we started doing private equity and venture capital. So we started actually putting equity into those institutions, whether they were microfinance banks or education um, financing companies or housing like builders uh, and affordable housing or where, where actually energy, energy companies providing affordable energy space. So Bamboo was putting equity capital into those organizations and participating as part of that shareholder, adding value, being on the board of directors of those organizations, thinking about ways to create partnerships, grow their business, etc. and adding like that component of, of being part of the business and being part of the of the of the of the team and family of the of the founder. I'm curious what the default rate is uh, on uh, in in these cases of uh, you know microfinancing is like for, like if, if an institution is financing a thousand small entrepreneurs what's the how many of them are going to go uh, are not going to be unable are going to be unable to repay their their debt it, it varies it varies country by country and i've been 
uh, like far from the microfinance space in a while to to give you like updated uh, stats. And, and those and the, and the default rates are typically incorporated into the microfinance institutions um, business models itself. So they, they are in most in some cases they are regulated and some other cases they are not regulated. But they, what, what happens is that the, the, the model of the microfinance space is that it's, it's aimed to build um, a financial product that is, 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 is trying to find a way to match the cycles and the cash flows of the entrepreneurs so that yeah. they can pay back. And there is a level of trust that is built between the loan officers and the, and the entrepreneurs so that it creates kind of that, that sense of, um, of like accountability to pay back. Originally, the microfinance industry like, actually started in, in groups. So people were like co-guaranteeing like, co, um, each other. That has evolved and like the most commercial uh, microfinance banks nowadays are actually more, we operate more like a traditional bank, but of course they have innovations to be able to address the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah, um, but I'm, I'm assuming that the, the higher risk of uh, microfinance investment uh, must mean higher interest rates. In, in some cases, in, in some cases it does because yes, yeah. you are, if you, if you have a higher default rate, um, right. interest rates might be higher, but it's not, it's not always, it's not always the case. In fact, we, we found that good, good microfinance institutions and good microfinance banks were able to be more competitive than a traditional commercial bank. And it was more advantageous for an entrepreneur to actually go and work with the local microfinance bank than with any of the local providers that were not built um, and designed to serve that population. So there is a lot of design and enterprise design that goes into this organization, how the products are built to allow for affordability. Also, some of these organizations build strong guarantees in their balance sheets to be able to afford some of the losses. And because it's so pulverized and you have so many customers, um, they, there, is, there is like a risk mitigation strategy in, the, in that regard too. Okay, um, so as far as startups, what types of what kind of interesting startups did you have a chance to work in uh, as part of Bamboo uh, in Colombia, Colombian startups? In Colombia, well, we we I wasn't focused only on Colombia. I was based ah. in Colombia, but I was um I was investing in from Mexico to Paraguay, which was absolutely a a pleasure for me to to discover my my region. Through the eyes of those of those entrepreneurs and myself, I wasn't. I was actually not managing companies in Colombia. I was managing a few companies in Mexico, in El Salvador, in Brazil, and in Paraguay. There was one. There is one organization that is very, very dear to my heart um, in Mexico called Finae, which is was a, is a is a fin, is an education finance company that was basically dedicated to lend to low income and, and low to middle income students who were allowed, thanks to the, the financing that were provided, be able to afford um, education and, and universities and colleges that were unreachable for them. So the product was designed in a way that was basically go, taking the students one, one level up in the ladder of economic affordability to be able mm -hmm. to access higher and better education opportunities. Like that's one company that I was able to support for like four years, be on the board, see them grow, see them access different kinds of capital. And that was very interesting. So were there you was, in fintech mostly, or or in other? Areas? We, we I would say fintech. When when I left Bamboo in two thousand sixteen, we had started to see the growth of the fintech space. So like we'll say between 
2014, 2015, 2016, we saw a spurt in that in that area, and we did additional investments in the fintech space. We invested in in a company called in a startup called Cuba um, in in Mexico, which was a an online lending platform mm -hmm. to to be able to like democratize the access to to financing uh, in the country and like challenge the traditional way that financial institutions were doing it. We also, I also invested in a company called Compare Online in Chile, which was a, a marketplace actually for insurance. So to be able to make it more transparent the cost of actually accessing auto insurance or health insurance or life insurance uh, at a time, like think about like this is six years ago um, when this was not like necessarily so available as it is right now. So yes, absolutely. Bamboo played a huge role in, in investing in those industries. And now um, so many of my colleagues are very dedicated to the, to the fintech space. Okay, and then uh, eventually you reached the Employment Technology Fund. Uh, you, uh, what prompted you to join the Employment uh, Technology Fund? And what kind of work are you guys doing there right now? Yeah, thank you. So one, one of the, as I said before, like one of the things that prompted me to, to join the fund is like this, this commitment to use technology and leverage technology for social good. I think for me, that was very enticing. Uh, second, um, I think is, is the unique ability that the fund has to deploy like a particular type of capital and to leverage all of the networks um, that JFF, like the nonprofit JFF has with corporations, with higher, higher education institutions, with policymakers to support entrepreneurs. I say it's maybe also like for those who don't know what, what ETF is or the Employment Technology Fund is, ETF is a, is a social venture capital fund that is housed within jo Jobs for the Future, which is the United States leading nonprofit dedicated to drive transformation of the American workforce and education system. So that's, that's ETF. And what's, what's been very interesting is that it, ETF has been able to, like they started in 2017 with like the idea to prove a concept that it was possible to to invest um, in a in a like to, to invest in technologies that were benefiting workers in low and middle wage jobs, and actually make it in a profitable way. So the the fund the team has been able to prove that over the past few years, and that was for me very interesting to see. As I was telling you, like I, I coming out of Keb, I had this desire to like look into the innovations not only in the education space but also in the work market. So that we could respond to the needs of young adults, particularly here in the States, but also everywhere that are like looking for jobs and unable to get them, that are going for like really expensive education and they are not able to land a job after they graduate, either from high school or college or master's degree. And there is a huge transformation that is happening in the technology and in society that we as human beings need to catch up to uh, and the job markets need to also accelerate the transformation. Could you share? with us some uh, success stories from your experience at ETF. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to happy to share what I what I've been able to to witness over the past uh, few months working with the team. Like the, the first thing is that for me it's been very clear that uh, that ETF has been able to prove that investing in technology to benefit low to middle wage workers can be financially viable. Uh, and 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 it's and and that's a really that's very reassuring because the impact investing space is still demonstrating that that level of return. Like so many funds nowadays 
are not haven't even returned their capital back to their investors. So we, as they say here in the state, it's like the proof is in the pudding. So mm -hmm. let's see what, what happens and how many of those funds actually return back money to investors. But we've seen in, in, in early stage companies, we are starting to see exits and we are starting to see some of those organizations return capital back to, to, the, to the funds. And I think that that's very promising because it's allowing more capital to flow into the industry. And, and I think that would be the way to, to demonstrate like at the end, this is impact investing, but investing needs, as we, as I, we discussed before, like it needs returns, right? We need to get yes. your capital back. Uh, otherwise it's not investing, it's philanthropy. And, and, and I've been able to see that. And I, I've seen like the ETF team like has shared with me about some of the companies that have been recently acquired by external parties. And that has been, I think, very encouraging particularly as like many of these organizations are founded by women. I think that's also like a really important point in, in yeah. their journey. They, like some of companies like Nepres in their portfolio were, were, were acquired. There was another organization called 180 Skills, which was an online learning platform for manufacturing jobs that was acquired um, by a large group in December of 2021. Um, another company I remember that, that um, also was, was acquired was a signal vine they were leading they were doing a conversational text messaging um, through a platform for higher education so you are starting to see these these demonstrate this demonstration that this space is attractive and that there is a room for consolidation and acquisitions and of course as as you am i been following like the ed tech space here particularly in the states but also across the globe has grown so much so like when i left um, bamboo in 2016, looking to really understand the education space and looking to see how I could become a, a better investor. But now we've seen it, right? For the past six years, this industry has grown in such a significant way and so many more companies have emerged, not only in the ed tech space, but also in the workforce tech space, which is the, where, is the, is the area and the niche where the ETF is currently playing, is the, in the workforce development, HR tech, workforce tech. Why is it always tech? Uh, <laughs> meaning, um, Good question. I don't hear a lot of investment, let's say in education, for example, and I have a lot of experience. I also own a company in uh, design education. Uh, I don't hear a lot of emphasis on methodology or something, innovation methodology, which you could still perhaps uh, patent um, innovation in the uh, you know, like uh, once upon a time you had, uh, I don't know, Montessori education or something, you know, there, there was no tech there, it was just a different approach. Mm -hmm. um, why why is, it, is there so much fascination with tech as far as VCs are concerned? Um, and uh, is there space for anything that, does, that perhaps where tech is not necessarily secondary, but it's, it's just a tool, but mm -hmm. there's an underlying a methodology that is dominant and that's the essence of the of the business that a vc would would uh, would invest in yeah it's it's a really it's a really important question that you raise and i have like some like some different takes on it so i will say there is so much there's been so much capital in the capital markets over the past few years right we've seen this explosion of venture capital funds and so much liquidity, of course, as interest rates in, in the States and in Europe have gone down like a decade ago and, and, and started to like go down after the financial crisis. So like that, of course, boosted venture capital. And with that emergence of, of more funding, of course, creates like a need to find 
spaces to invest. So of course that boosts the entrepreneurial ecosystem and, and is inspiring many people who were before probably in, in more traditional environments to want to enterprise and do something, of course, because it's the right time at the right moment. So that's part of it. And I think that certainly technology is, is, is a tool and it's a lever to be able to get things done faster. Mm -hmm. Also, the other thing is that technology is very democratizing. And, and particularly right now, as uh, globalization is so present in our lives, like the hard and like core, like brick and mortar solutions are harder to scale and are going to like even get harder to, to, to reach people. So if we can use technology and particularly now that so many, both adults and, and young adults and children have access to some kind of device, it is so much easier to, to actually reach them. So I, I would say, as, as I tell you before, I told you before, I'm an optimist. So I, I like to think about how technology can be used for good and how technology can be used to improve access um, and democratize like high quality services and high quality education and high quality jobs. And I agree with you that I don't think technology is the panacea and I don't think technology should be the only kind of sector that we should be looking at. I joined Keb um, looking for like education innovation and certainly is not necessarily a tech organization. It's, an, it's, an, it's a nonprofit that has been very successful um, building schools and then building traditional schools that are innovating in their model, in their curriculum, in the way that they hire and train teachers and the way that they work with families. So the innovation is in, in another spectrum and I and they use technology to be able to like be more efficient, manage their classrooms better, to like get access to families, to keep track of students. So, so technology can be used as a tool and not necessarily as the platform. So I don't think that one should be just dogmatic around technology as the only way, but it's certainly a very effective way to actually get things done um, fast and in an effective way. And last, of course, technology has a lot of risks. And, and I think that ethical use of technology and ethical use of data um, is a very important topic that I think as impact investors needs to always be very mindful of and how we are promoting and supporting tech companies also needs to be accompanied by these like reasoning of like how can AI, machine learning and technology be actually used for not so good? Yeah. So my understanding is that the vast majority of startups in technology actually fail. Um, I've heard numbers like uh, nine out of 10 fail or something like that. I don't know how many, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, would that be because the field of uh, tech in any, in any area is uh, over, oversaturated? And perhaps there's uh, this attitude that uh, to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, that perhaps, mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, because it's relatively easy, low barriers to entry, any kid, you know, with a laptop thinks they can build a tool. Um, and because perhaps VCs play a numbers game in the end, they just make bets. Uh, is that perhaps the reason why so many startups fail? And what are the dangers of that approach? Meaning, is mm -hmm. there a, is there another uh, kind of approach to to business uh, left out that uh, that could be both profitable and beneficial to to society? Of course, that doesn't mean something that leaves technology out. But as I said earlier, something that does not consider technology as, you know, coding this, 
you know, like we, we, at this point, what we consider to be technology nine times out of 10 is basically some kind of a algorithm, right? Um, but, uh, you know, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, 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 am, I, am, I am a capitalist at the end, right? I, I, that's my training, I, like, and that's what I understand. And I'm also an optimist capitalist, right? And, and I like to, to think about capital, capitalism and capital use for good. And which is why I do what I do. So I don't. I don't necessarily would blame the financial industry and the venture capitalists for the failure of of startups. I think, in fact, I think more capital being available in the space is is a good thing, and it allows more founders, and particularly like in our case, underrepresented founders to have access to capital that they would not be available before. So the least, if you have low, low amounts of capital, probably that capital is going to be cherry picking few entrepreneurs and is not going to be like providing more access to people from diverse backgrounds like, like me, right? Like immigrants in this country, black, Latinos, et cetera, like are typically underrepresented in the venture capital space. And when you think about capital growing and more venture capitals playing a role in the space and particularly those like us who are caring about investing with an intent, to, 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 to create an impact, we are thinking about where do you put your money? And I think that that's, that's maybe where the, the challenge lies is that when there is so much capital, of course, the, the barriers and the kind of the hurdles to invest probably lower. And when you have an, a, a need to actually deploy a lot of capital really quickly, you might be putting money in places that you shouldn't. And that is dangerous. So I do think that we are we are very cognizant of that, um, and, and we try to remain rigorous as much as, as as we can to be diligent in how we go after co investing in companies because we know that if a lot of capital flows into a few companies that we know might not be successful in the future, that's going to hamper not only the founder later when they are going to go back to the market and raise in a in a drier or more challenging environment, but it's going to also sacrifice the impact that is going to compromise the learners, the workers, and everyone who is going to was served by this company. So we, when we are working with founders on a one-on-one -on -one basis, we, we tell them like, be careful, not only of who you're working with, but at which prices you're getting money, because it's going to affect you later down the road. Like we've seen the market has changed so much. Like last year, like 2020 to 2021, there was like such a growth in, in, in venture capital investments um, and like in our niche in the future of work, like there was an increase of like 50%, like from 2020, 20, when 2020 to 2021, it was, it's, it's, it's just crazy to see the amount of capital that has been flowing to the space. And now we are getting into drier times um, as interest rates are going up, uh, the recession is, is pending, like we are seeing less capital flowing to, to founders. And, yeah, we might see some of our companies and in, not only in, in ETF, but in the larger space start to struggle with, with liquidity, with the ability to access capital. And that might actually force some of them to fail, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. they had these like really high ambitions and push for growth that maybe now is going to be compromised by their ability to actually get capital. So what's the reaction of uh, the venture capital world to uh, what's happening now coming out of the pandemic as well as the war and the, as we said, uh, recession is possibly coming up. Are they tightening, uh, tightening their belts? Are they, are they getting a little tighter in terms of their willingness to, to spend money? Uh, how does it work? 
yeah, it's a good. I, I can't speak on behalf of the entire venture capital space. I can speak on behalf of of, of the team at, J, at JFF and and ETF. And we are seeing definitely across the board, like among our companies and in our space, capital tightening up. Um, there've been famous um, emails going around from large funds and and accelerators saying companies to tighten their belts to like focus on 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 lowering expenses to keeping capital and and staying uh, afloat as much as they can and extend the, the runway or like the amount of capital they have to operate yeah. in our case we know that now more than ever um our work is important like we know that low-income workers and communities are going to be the most affected by what's going on yeah. we know that diverse founders um are probably going to be a like the most affected by like traditional investors not wanting to continue to boost capital into the space. So that makes the, the mission and, and the work of, of a fund like ours and of course so many other funds who work alongside us more important mm -hmm. because they these, these founders are gonna need, they're gonna continue to need liquidity and they're gonna continue to need supporters and funds who are ready to roll their sleeves and work alongside them to protect what they do and their mission and their impact so that we can weather this crisis. Right. Um, so, as far as what your the, the the founders that you've invested in, the companies that you've invested in, does any uh, particular case come to mind where you dealt with a, a you know a, like a success story that you that you want to share with us? Something really inspiring. So many inspiring stories. This, uh, this has been it's been a really great journey for me to like discover this this space through the fund because the the fund the ETF has like thirty five companies in their portfolio. So I am I'm still in the journey of getting to know them, but there are there are a few of them that have really stood out for me um, as in, in my journey of discovery. For instance, um, there is a, there is one of one company in our portfolio called Ant Hill which is basically developing um, a technology and a platform to be able to enable deskless workers. So like all of those workers who are in the front lines, who are in the manufacturing jobs, who are like not in front of a computer like you and me are, to allow them to actually access the same services that all you and me will be able to access employees, to make it seamless for them to be able to know their pay, to be able to know their benefits, to know when they can take time off and all of those things that are, imagine someone in a manufacturing job having to take like time off on their lunch break and having to stand on the line of an HR person and waste that amount of time when they can actually do it easily on their device. So these are these companies doing this massive transformation for, for that percentage of the population that is being deeply underlooked despite of how many deskless workers are in the world. So that's been for me really interesting and fascinating to watch. Um, there is another uh, company in our portfolio that has been that has been really standing out for me called Mayor League Hacking, uh, which, is, which is a company that is running hackathons um, to support, um, to, to be able to start train a computer scientists and place them in the job market in like a really fast way and in a really predictable way. So they are, they're like innovating the way that they are training um, these people. And, and there is one that I that has become really dear to my heart, particularly with everything that's been going on here in the United States, called Honest Jobs, which is a marketplace for people with criminal records who are really in a 
deep desire and need to access the job market, but because of so many barriers that exist here in terms of background checks, they're unable to access uh, any kind of jobs. Are there any uh, impact funds out there who emphasize, who are focused 100% on uh, uh, ventures developed by former uh, felons, ex-cons? Funds, hmm. I don't know, that's a really good question. Honest Jobs, the founder and the and the team, most like most of them, or if not all of them, are actually have felon are felons. So that that okay. is inspiring. I haven't heard about funds, but that's a really good question. That's meaning funds or accelerators that focus hundred percent on providing, I guess, the tool, I guess, the tools uh, and the finance to uh, startups that are founded by accelerators and I don't know, it just, uh, it just came to me. Um, so being a, a dad of two girls, I always, when, when I meet women like you with such impressive uh, track record um, and journey in a, what you would, I'm assuming, call a man's world, which is the VC world, right? It's still a man's world. Um, can you talk about that? How is it to be a woman in a, in the industry of VC and uh, Impact VC in particular. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for your kind words. Um, uh, how it is, and I would say, like I like to take it back to the beginnings. Like I I I grew up in a family that instilled in me the value and the joy of service, and I think that that learning that like my privileges and my education whatever they were carried a social responsibility has been like my north star right like and 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 that's how i frame myself like even beyond being being a woman certainly uh, navigating yeah. the banking spaces and later the boardrooms and being like a very young female leader in latin america and being in spaces very male dominated wasn't an easy charge. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think I had the fortune of like one, my family, second mentors, third um, allies within my funds. Like I, I had wonderful bosses and supervisors, who male supervisors who believed in me and empowered me to, to lead mm -hmm. and who would not be even thinking about uh, gender um, to be in the spaces and, and, and coach me to, to, to be confident and to show up as I am, uh, regardless of, of my gender. And now I, I, I feel like I now have that obligation and that responsibility. So like when I meet uh, young women in, my, in the classroom and they are my students, or now that I'm working with female founders at the, at the fund, like around 50% of the founders at, at the Employment Technology Fund are women. I am one very optimistic because I know what they can do and, and what they probably are looking for in terms of support, but also very determined and committed to, to help them out because I know it's not always easy. So yeah, thank you for asking the question. What do you think were the biggest obstacles for you? Um, was it, I guess, like uh, obstacles that you placed yourself, like personal, you know, your perception of what you could achieve until someone who happened to be male told you, don't worry about that, just be confident? Or was it something that was actually structural within the industry of finance? Like, the, the, you mean the, in terms of the obstacles? Yeah, obstacles, yeah. Was it personal obstacles that you set for yourself? Things that, you know, that society basically taught you about, you know, being a woman, you can't do certain things? Or was it 
structural obstacles that you faced uh, as you entered the field? I think it's really more um, society and structural obstacles. And I, I would say the lack of role models yeah. and, and people within these companies to, to look up to. Um, in Colombia, fortunately, I would say like the financial industry is very female dominated. So although yeah. like in the, in the investment banking space is very male dominated, you do have strong female leaders. And I had those examples and wonderful people who I keep dear in my heart and I admire and like, I have as a as an example of, of how I want to show up and uh, throughout my career I think I have been always looking up to those female leaders who show me a way to 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 be a leader to be a mother to be a wife to be a good friend while also leading organizations I also had the fortune of seeing that at kept in in wonderful ways and have terrific three female supervisors who who show me how to do it and and yeah, I think that I've been really lucky to have those um, female leaders as as example to to follow. There's something about uh, it will sound stupid the way that I'll phrase the problem, but is there, is it something about the female brain, <laughs> the way that women think, I guess, um, that uh, is part uh, like is really is good for for a leader of a of a corporation of a company. I, I know there's been a lot of research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of research in this area, and it's a, it's a, I, I, I don't know enough to be able to like give you like a scientific answer to to, to the brain side. I would say though that in impact careers, like impact mm -hmm. investing or education, certainly the inclination of women to be more empathetic, to be more caring, to like look after others, to think about community, I think it's is a is a big asset. And we saw it during the pandemic, right? There were so many studies showing like how prime ministers and, and, prime, and presidents of countries that were like female were able to um, undergo the pandemic in such a different way and, and in a more sustainable manner. So I am, yeah, maybe I am I'm, I'm biased <laughs> to say that um, we do have a position in, and it's, it's no surprise, like in, even in my, in my classroom, like probably 70% of my students are female. Mm -hmm. So there is also a, a motivation and a desire to, to do good and, and to use technical skills, financial acumen, business acumen, and, and to, to do something better for society and the planet. So I so am This, I am this is a class that you teach at Columbia, right? And that's a social entrepreneurial. I do, yes. So, yes, so an what's, impact what's investing the, class. Right. So, so you focus 100% on the process of impact investing? You, or you, is it a and like a general overview of impact investing industry or what exactly do you cover in that class? Yeah, it's a, it's a very practical class. It's um, project-based learning. Um, the idea is that with theory you can read and books you can cover on your own. But what we try to do in my, in my class with, with, with my co-instructor, Natasha Goldstein, is that we work to show students actually how it gets done because we want them to get out of the classroom and out of, 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 of Columbia University's um, School of International Public Affairs, knowing how actually it's it's done and like the skills that they need. So we are um, very pro skills-based learning um, and skills-based work and, and interviewing. So whenever I am in front of the students, I am, I am modeling for them. I am showing them examples. We go over a case. They have to come to us with pitches and ideas of companies that they would like to invest. We just dissect them together. We do the screening. We understand the market for those, the business model, et cetera. And like we unpack it. 
throughout the class. And at the end of the, of the class, they are left with very particular tools to do the analysis, the assessment, the structuring, and the negotiation of, um, of impact investing instruments and, and investments. Is the world of VC already saturated or is there space for much more? I'm talking about VC in general, not impact investing necessarily. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say saturated. I think that there are niches and geographies where there is still a lot of, of growth um, to see. Like me as, as, as a Colombian, as a Latin American, I can, I can still see a lot of capital that is needed in, 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 in my home country and region to be able to unleash and untap so many opportunities and, and entrepreneurial um, like opportunities that there are. Mm -hmm. I, I think that in other markets more developed, uh, probably there is more saturation and I'm, we are starting to see more capital flowing from developed markets like the United States into Latin and many funds, even in our, in our space, in the workforce development space and education, like looking for opportunities in, in emerging markets and particularly in Latin America. Great. Um, when, you, when you're looking at a, at a company that you're interested in investing in, could you take us through the process that you follow um, in order to, to decide from zero until you say, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going, I, I think this is investable. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, that's a very good question. So the first, the first thing that we do, and I think every single fund does is actually test the fit. Like what's the mission and what's the thesis or the investment thesis of the fund vis-a-vis -vis the, the company itself, like what they are doing, right? So in, in, in our case, like at ETF, to make it very concrete, like we invest in early stage companies that are leveraging technology to improve the lives of low to middle income workers, either through training, through better like matching with opportunities, through like wraparound services to make their lives better, and so if the company that we are looking at matches that, of course, we can proceed with the analysis. That would be the first thing. Second, uh, we are going to be looking at like few, like, few, like few factors that are really key. Like one is the market, like how large is the market? Is this company going to be able to grow and achieve uh, their, like, their projections and they're wanting, wanting to do? Second, their business model, is it attractive? Uh, can actually they make money because this is investing um, how embedded the impact and the social um, like impact or environmental impact is into the business model how good the team is like are they like set for success like who are who is who is part of the team do they work well together do they have the skills for scale etc like other character related questions so that and, and, la and like last but not least is like of course the the impact so we are going to really go deeply into understanding how is this company actually delivering um, impact for the beneficiaries? Like in this case, in our case, like low to middle wage workers and how are they actually reaching them? How are they improving their lives? How are they actually getting really good outcomes? Are they making sure that these, these people, if they are taking training, are they finishing? What is the effectiveness of it? Uh, how employable they are after they finish the training? So we, we go really deep into this part of, of the of the analysis to be able to see if there is like a strong fit. In terms of process, it changes fund by fund. In our case, we do like an initial approval with our team and our CEO. And if like later we work on a deeper due diligence, then we work with an investment committee and we discuss it and we finalize the approval and actually execute on the investment. Perfect. 
So I always like to end with a question, uh, what is your own image of yourself right now? And also, where do you see yourself in 20 years? The image of myself right now. Can you say more about what do you mean? The perception of your own life right now. Um, I don't know, just thank you. what's your interpretation, whatever your interpretation of the question is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, I feel very blessed. I am sitting here in front of New York City, a city I love and that has given me so many opportunities, uh, the love of my life and so many friends. And I feel really lucky because I come from the mountains of Colombia, from a very small town. Um, and I now I know I have a big responsibility in terms of using everything that I've learned um, and I've been able to witness to actually continue driving social change. So that's, that's the image I have of me. Um, how I see myself um, in 25 years. Wow. Um, Let's say 20. Okay. <laughs> 20 <laughs> 20, 25, 25 I, hope I'm, I might be retired. <laughs> but maybe back in Colombia or in the south of France, who knows. Okay. Um, 20 years, I, I'm sure I will continue to be busy. I don't know how to stay put and do nothing. So I will probably continue. I, I love working with founders. I love working with entrepreneurs and people who are curious about ways to, to disrupt systems and, and do things better and to improve the lives of others. So I can totally see myself probably on the board of some companies helping those companies thrive um, and, and get to their outcomes. Um, I also, I love the art. So I probably would be doing more painting and, and enjoying music and finally picking up on the piano that I have always wanted to play. So yeah, I hope I can delve into more creative sides of myself. I think as technology is, is, is continue to evolve, um, our jobs are going to be more automated in a way that allows us human beings to enjoy the, the pleasures of life. You feel that uh, you are just way too busy between family and, and work to pursue your your hobbies and you have to wait until retirement to do that? <laughs> no, I, try, I, I I would say the percentage of time that I'm able to, to invest into my hobbies is smaller than I will in a few years, but I am yeah. lucky enough that I have a very supportive partner who allows me to, to do some of those, but I would probably change the equation. 